Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to be talking about uh, water issues on the program today. Living in the second driest state in the U.S., most of us are closely attuned to water issues, especially as we face changes to our climate. Three experts here at Utah State University recently chose water as the topic of their local TED Talks. And uh, we're bringing them together for a hopefully stimulated discussion on the topic of water. We'll be talking with Bruce Bugby, USU professor who teaches crop physiology and plant nutrition. He analyzes the enormous worldwide requirement for food production, reviews the crisis in world water supply, and shows how small changes in diet can have major impacts on our global food print. We welcome in Bruce Bugby by telephone. Now, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate, Glad to be here. Appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Joanna Enterwada is uh, with us. Joanna Enterwada, if you say your name correctly, as a USU Associate Professor of Natural Resources and Environmental Policy. Uh, she, in her talk, looks at the fundamental ethical considerations, policy debates, and planning concerns that mo- must be addressed to answer the question, how much water do communities in the West need to survive? And she asks, as a society, how do we ensure that our w- wants for water don't imperil our needs for water? Joanna Enterwada joins us in studio. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. And David Rosenberg, uh, USU Assistant Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering, and his talk says we shouldn't insist on optimal solutions. Instead, we uh, should explore near-optimal alternatives, allowing us to discover strategies to thrive in the face of society's most pressing resource problems. David Rosenberg joins me in studio. Thanks. Great. It's great to be here, Tom. So this is very interesting. Uh, uh, we were talking before we went on the air, um, Joanna Enterwada, you guys get nominated to give these talks. I guess it's... It's not necessarily something you seek, but I guess colleagues thought you'd give a good talk, and so you get a call from the TED folks. Is that what happens? Yes, and it was a surprise, and it was very uh, an honor to be asked to give a TED talk. And so right now, uh, the university is taking nominations for the TED Talks for next year. So very, very interesting. You could get nominated if you're uh, on, the, on the USU campus. There are many TED uh, conferences around uh, the world, and uh, this is a Technology, Entertainment, and Design. It's a global set of conferences in which the uh, participants, the presenters, are asked to uh, give a maximum of 18 minutes to present their ideas in the most innovative and engaging ways they can. The phrase often used, give the talk of your life. Uh, and uh, this has uh, spawned quite a movement. I think it's been a wonderful thing because for the layperson, you get to hear the experts give their uh, research uh, in, a, in a very uh, streamlined and entertaining way. And so we're going to take advantage of that on the program today. By the way, this is was presented, I, I'm sure will be presented again next year by the Office of Research and Graduate Studies. with was held from the Kane College of the Arts. There. It's called TEDxUSU. Let's start with uh, Bruce Bugby. Um, I think uh, your presentation, you're your wondering about water issues, started with sending payloads into space. Uh, tell me a bit about that. Well, when you get asked to give a TED Talk, they don't tell you what to talk about, right? You can talk about whatever you want, and that, that takes a while to think about what topic are you most passionate about, what topic are you really is right at the core of your expertise, and partly because it it does get out there and broadcast to a lot of people. If you say things that are not on solid technical background, a lot of people see that. So you want to make sure that you're talking about something you're you're um, well informed about. Uh, and mine grew out of the uh, work we've been doing with NASA to grow plants in space and and all the nutrition people that get involved in that work, uh, diets for multiple year space travel, and you quickly realize that animal products are, for the foreseeable future, just out of the question. They, hmm. they, uh, you, you're going to have to have a strict vegan diet to make this work, and that leads into thinking about what happens. If the whole planet became vegan or vegetarian, and what would it do? Uh, and I, I, I wanted to do two things in my talk. One, talk about how the massive amount of water going to food production is not wasted. Uh, people look at 70% of our water resources are dedicated to agriculture, and the conclusion is they must be wasting that water. That's an enormous amount of water. So I wanted to address that topic. And then secondly, 
what could you do about it if you're concerned about water? What are the things you can do? And certainly shifting diets to have reduced amount of animal products definitely helps take the pressure off uh, water resources. Well, to back up a little bit, you, you quote some statistics in your talk, which uh, surprised me. I haven't made a study of this. Somewhat familiar with the issues. 90% of the water in the world is salt water. 99% of the fresh water is frozen. And on top of that, 100 gallons um, uh, of water goes into the, the, the food we we eat. That's, you know, that's more than a, the gallon a day we used to drink, I guess, the 20 gallons we use in washing. Uh, enormous amounts of water go into food. Yes, yes. Those are not controversial statistics. They're they're well known, but it's when you think about it, it's it's virtual water, and uh, the water that grew into making even the simplest products in the diet is is just enormous. So, the idea that well, okay, I'm doing my part. I turned off the water when I was brushing my teeth. That's minuscule compared to a tiny, tiny shift in the diet. Yeah, you say that the type of food we eat has a bigger impact on the environment than the car we drive. And, and yet our, our emphasis is just the, exactly the opposite, usually. Yeah, and that, and that statement took a lot of analysis for me, looking at what are the resources in the cars. and um, Cars take fossil fuels, and food we eat takes a lot of water, but food takes a lot of fossil fuels as well. So I was looking for a statistic that would have a hard-hitting and memorable impact, or a statement that would have a hard-hitting and memorable impact, and I came up with, with that. And there's a phrase you say that's used, more crop per drop. And as you say, that, the, that water is not being wasted. In fact, it, it more and more, we're getting more efficient in, in agriculture. Yes, um, and, and particularly as the cost of water goes up, it gets more precious, growers are looking at, what do I do to uh, maximize the crop I can produce? There's still more that we can do, and better technologies to squeeze out the maximum amount of food. Um, but it's a, it's, we're going to run out of water way before we run out of fossil fuels. And, and I shouldn't say run out of water. We're not going to run out of water. It automatically recycles. But Spinning off food from that recycling water is um, an enormous challenge. Mm-hmm. And how are we going to feed 9 billion people 40 years from now? Yeah. Uh, we'll loop back around to Bruce Bugby. I-, I want to ask about uh, this statement as we get back around to him. He says carbon dioxide is a trace gas. <laughs> That's amazing to me. Yet plants very uh, very efficiently use this uh, carbon dioxide, and, and that involves water. We'll get around to back around to Bruce Bugby. Uh, let's turn to Joanna Antawata um, with, with Natural Resources. Uh, you, uh, at the beginning of your presentation, uh, pulled up a, a slide of a ruin. And that's a very stark point that you're making that it's not a foregone conclusion that we'll survive. There, there have been civilizations uh, here in the western U.S. that have not survived, and I guess water is, is part of that. Uh, so that highlights kind of the sort of the stark nature of this. You have some hopeful things in, in your presentation as well, but uh, I wonder if you talk about that uh, kind of the bold relief. And, of course, climate change and, and increasing population, uh, these are will be increasing problems. I think with climate change and the limitation in water supplies in the face of growing populations in the West. We have to confront the trade-offs that we're going to face in the future. And uh, in particular, we're continue to grow large urban areas in a desert region. And their development is based upon importing water from distant rural sources or ecosystems. And so the effects that that growth has outside the immediate vicinity of the growth is important. And, of course, there are many competing water users, and it's not just humans. We're all interconnected. Um, And, you know, we're all aware in the West, especially if you've grown up in the West, that um, there are fights over water. Part of your presentation, though, you say we don't don't need to think about it in that paradigm. There's a very dynamic tension between cooperation and conflict over water. It can go either way, and it depends on how people treat each other in 
trying to determine how we're going to allocate water to those different uses. So one of my examples was from the Bear River Basin that in the face of the 2004 drought, which was very serious, managed to cooperate in making it through that drought based on having become used to droughts in the past, anticipating droughts, and having some mechanisms in place to deal with that, in particular some settlement agreements, communication strategies, and more technical monitoring of the water that was being delivered to people. So it was very transparent who was using what, and there was an accountability. But uh, they had a success story, at least in that event, related to dealing with scarce water supplies. And this was actual cooperation, right? This, these were high-level high water rights people who didn't use all their water because, and you know, sent it back because they saw the need for cooperation? The Bear River Canal Company, a number of years before, had entered a voluntary settlement agreement with Pacific Corps and with Bear Lake Watch that in certain drought conditions, they would forego some of the water that they had the legal right to use in order to maintain the levels of Bear Lake. And so um, they didn't use all the water that they had the legal entitlement to. And they abided by the agreement that they had negotiated in response to the previous drought in the early 1990s. And um, they made it through. But it was also people communicating with each other, knowing who needed water when, and coordinating their uses of water with each other, recognizing they were all vulnerable to scarcity hmm. together. How does, how does that come about? I'm sure you studied that part of it. How, how does that come about? I'm speaking as the grandson of a water master in western Utah. And I heard stories, and it's, it's, you know, it can go the other way. It <laughs> can. Well. It went to cooperation this time. How, why? I think it, uh, we've traced it um, as being due to a long history of responding to drought. And the whole law of the river, of the Bear River Basin, is, is in response to drought. And what do you do in times of scarcity? And so it's a very long history of building agreements, building trust between each other, and negotiating what happens when it's scarce. Hmm. And uh, in this particular case, there were people that had gotten to know each other very well, and the people in Bear River Basin that knew it well um, got together after the previous drought. There were certainly some levers that pushed them to cooperate. Um, people had each other over a barrel in some senses legally, and they realized the best way out of it was to cooperate instead of duking it out legally. Mm. So the fact that their agreements held during a very deep drought pleased <clears throat> themselves. Mm. We'll uh, talk about some other examples that Joanna Enterwada uh, has in her presentation and uh, follow up on this idea of uh, cooperation. Uh, before I turn to David Rosenberg, uh, Joanna Enterwada, I, I wanted to uh, talk about the urban areas. Uh, surprising to some people that uh, the West... Kind of the interior west here is one of the most urbanized areas in, in the U.S. Uh, we tend to think about the farmland and the, and the open country, but not a lot of people proportionally live there. We're living in cities. The population is increasing. Droughts are, you know, come and, come and go. Climate change is, is, uh, might make things drier. Um, and so now cities, they've been working on conservation. Many cities have been doing a good job there. Uh, but now they're looking at aquifers. And that's a finite um, resource in, in some cases. You're looking at new, uh, new sources of, of water, and uh, city water managers are scratching their heads. When you could amplify upon that, what, what are some of, the, uh, some of the problems that they're facing with increasing populations? Irrigating urban landscapes is one of the largest uses of urban water, especially in arid regions. And so some of the my talk sort of revolved around three different types of irrigators, agricultural irrigators, wetland irrigators, and urban irrigators. And while we often, as Bruce was mentioning, point a finger at agriculture and assume that it's wasteful because it uses a lot of water, we haven't looked as closely at urban irrigators and the potential for waste there. And so some of the work that we've done is trying to look at how you identify locations where there's capacity to conserve water used on landscapes and direct conservation programming to those locations. But um, what we decide to grow in the landscapes of the West and the kind of water that it needs is very important. And so urban um, 
water managers have dealt with indoor water use fairly effectively through the building codes and everything, and people are replacing their appliances and infrastructure in the house. So the big sort of frontier of trying to save water in the urban environment is looking at landscape water use. Hmm. And uh, so I'm, I'm sure that gets you into the discussion of the Kentucky bluegrass and the, you know, all of that. Oh, yes. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. And what should we grow on our, our lands? How should we use that? You also talk about um, the fact that we, you talk to most people, they can't tell you how much their, their water costs or where it comes from. Or, you know, we, we don't know a lot about our water. We've made it very uh, convenient, accessible to people. And that's right. They don't have to think very much about how much they use, and they often don't know. And so part of the work that we've been doing is how do you interpret the appropriateness of the amounts that they use to meet the need of growing whatever they have on the landscape. If you just joined us, we're talking about water, and we're basing this discussion on three TED Talks. This is TEDxUSU. It happened in November uh, here on the Utah State University campus. We're talking with Bruce Bugby, uh, USU professor, teaches crop physiology and plant nutrition. Joanna Enterwada, you just heard from her, a USU Associate Professor of Natural Resource and Environmental Policy. We turn next to USU Assistant Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering, David Rosenberg. After we talk with him a bit, we'll take a break, and then we'll get into a more free-flowing discussion to which you are invited. And the number is 1-800-826-1495. Love to hear about your water needs, your water use. What are you doing to conserve water, and what do you think we'll need going forward? On a global scale? Uh, do you agree with the findings of uh, Professor Bugby that uh, we'll need to uh, maybe consume less animals product and uh, and and maybe we don't all need to become vegans but uh, move a little bit in that direction and uh, what do we do just in in our backyard the number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail dot com upraxis at gmail dot com David Rosenberg uh, very interesting TED talk you uh, talk about the fact that we should not insist on optimal solutions. That surprised me. I, I, I thought we should, should look for the optimal solution, and that's it. You're saying that's, um, that's not what we should do. We should uh, discover strategies from near-optimal solutions. Maybe we could illustrate that. You, do, you have some very uh, entertaining illustrations in your talk about skiing, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think it's important to realize, as both Bruce and... Joanna have emphasized when we're dealing with water problems, we actually have very complex, highly engineered systems to manage the water. And there's actually a lot of flexibility, like Joanna was showing with or illustrating with the um, with the cooperative agreements or conflict. People can choose how they want to manage their water. And the point I was really wanting to emphasize with my talk is that we each have this choice in how we manage water in our individual lives, how cities manage water, how we as a region manage our water, and we can try for the optimal solution or we can go what's often easier or makes more sense for near optimal solutions, solutions that aren't perfect but will get us most of the way there or may even have some surprising attributes that we wouldn't necessarily find if we were only focused on this single minded best optimal way of 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 dealing with it it's kind of like looking at a winner takes all society where we only focus on the winner and there's all the rest of us who are who are not the fastest skier or the um the smartest person in the class or getting the highest grade or uh the the most cost-effective solution to a particular water problem but there are a lot of other solutions out there and we really need ways to to identify them, to generate them, consider them, examine them, and and choose from them because some of them may actually be be better, or more preferable. You have an example uh, that I could really relate to. Um, you and two friends went out skiing. Uh, I think you went last. Correct. Tell us that story. So um, skiing is one of my passions. I do it a lot um, in my free time, and it's really the snow that we ski on represents the water supply for. Um, for most of Utah, it melts in the springtime, runs off, and people collect that water and use it. But um, in skiing, uh, three friends and I went out one day. It had actually snowed the night before. There was about a foot of new fresh snow, and skiers just love powder. You just love turning through powder. And as we climbed up to the top of the hill that we were going to ski, there are a bunch of different routes down. And um, my friend Eric went first, 
and he just kind of zipped right down, pointed his ski straight down. And I mean, he was down at the bottom in less than a minute, few turns, very straight line. Um, it was quick and really sweet. Uh, my friend Jim went next and he chose a different route. Like part of the really one of the nice things about skiing is getting to make your own individual tracks and then be able to to look at them at the end. And so Jim didn't want to ski where Eric had. Um, he went to the uh, to the right and instead of just pointing his skis down really fast, he took a lot more time and made many more numerous turns, kind of swishing back and forth through the powder, spraying up snow. And it was kind of like he really wanted to just prolong that bliss you get from just floating through fresh powder. And so I was last, I'm looking at Eric's tracks on down one way and I'm like, there's no way I can do that. It was kind of going down through a steep cliff. And finally I decided to, um, to go right next to, to Jim's tracks, just weaving my tracks right next to his parallel in and out and in skiing that's called spooning. And, you know, just likewise, I wanted to just prolong the time it took, um, to, to, uh, to ski down, to really savor that feeling of, of skiing fresh powder. And I think the real, the message from that story is that fastest doesn't necessarily have to be best. There are other ways to, to get at that. Or a shorter, um, shorter way down can be just as pleasurable or enjoyable and can be near optimal. And um, it was just kind of fun to relay that story to, to help illustrate that, illustrate that point. And, and you made the point that engineers can be fun too. Oh yeah. There's to talk about spooning. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, which really, really comes across in your presentation. We're talking about the, the local TED Talks. Uh, these of course are talks where the uh, experts are uh, encouraged to give the talk of their lives in innovative ways in 18 minutes or under. And uh, there've been a couple of TEDx USU events here at Utah State University. The second of those in November of last year involved uh, my guests today. Uh, David Rosenberg, USU Assistant Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering, has just uh, talked with us. Uh, Joanna Enterwada, USU Associate Professor of Natural Resource and Environmental Policy. And Bruce Bugby, USU Professor, teaches crop physiology and plant nutrition. We'll get to talking more about water, global scale and local west scale as well. And you are uh, encouraged, welcome, to join the conversation. Love to hear about the water issues in your area. And uh, I know there probably are water issues in your area, especially if you're living in the West. Uh, toll free anywhere you're listening, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Wasserman Festival, presenting pianists from the Tchaikovsky and Van Cliburn International Piano Competitions, in concert March 6th, 20th, 21st at 7.30 p.m. in the USU Performance Hall. Tickets at arts.usu.edu. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Stress is what you feel when you have to handle more than you are used to. When you are stressed, your body responds as though you are in danger. It makes hormones that speed up your heart, make you breathe faster, and give you a burst of energy. This is called the fight-or-flight stress response. Stress is normal, but if it happens too often or lasts too long, it can have bad effects. It can be linked to headaches, upset stomach, back pain, and trouble sleeping. It can weaken your immune system, making it harder to fight off disease. You probably can't delete all stress from your life, but you can get better at managing your stress. Start a stress journal, ask for help when you need it, do some deep breathing exercises, and get some exercise. Find something that works for you and enjoy this life you've been given. This is Angela Helm for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. We're talking water on Access Utah today. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, many of us, of course, are closely attuned to water issues. We live in the second driest state in the U.S. Uh, climate change uh, may make our area drier. It uh, certainly will affect the planet. And we've heard earlier in the program how uh, small changes in diet can have enormous worldwide uh, effects on our global food print. We'll follow up with that. We've also been talking about and we'll continue to talk about how much water do communities in the West need to survive and how to ensure that our wants for water 
don't imperil our need for water. And we've been talking about uh, optimal solutions. Perhaps optimal solutions are not the best. We should explore near-optimal solutions, uh, alternatives. And David Rosenberg said in his TED Talk that uh, we perhaps can discover strategies to not only survive, but to thrive. We'll talk about that. Very hopeful outlook there. By the way, the theme of this past uh, November's TEDxUSU conference was survive. And that's why uh, several of the participants talked about water course, is indispensable to our survival. You can join this conversation. Uh, by the way, we're talking with uh, USU professors uh, Bruce Bugby, Joanna Eterwada, and David Rosenberg, coming at this from different disciplines. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. We'd love to hear about the water issues in your area, what you're doing perhaps in your backyard. Uh, you can join us by email as well to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Let's turn back to, to Bruce Bugby. Uh, Bruce Bugby, I'm interested uh, to, uh, at your illustration, maybe you could give us the audio version that you illustrated very effectively in your TED Talk. Uh, you had one man uh, represented by a little toy figure and a little piece of green felt, I guess, illustrating how much land that would take to, to feed that one person. I wonder if you could uh, go from there, explain uh, how things change when you introduce the, the man wanting uh, some eggs, for example. Yeah, that's, that's a nice tie-in to a point Joanna made just a minute ago. When you th- One way to think about it, this is, let, let's go into the future, and we have giant rockets now, and you and your family would like to take a trip to... to few laps around the planet and, and, and maybe swing by the moon. You know, you're out for a, uh, a, a trip, just as we might go to some, some distant country on the planet. Now we have the ability to go into space. But you're, if you're gone long enough, you've got to grow your own food. And the analogy is you would take your house and your yard with you and put a giant bubble over it. So everybody can imagine, okay, I take my kids, I get to take my whole house and my yard, but I got to recycle all my waste and grow all my food. Well, you can grow food for a family of four in a yard, roughly an acre. Um, it's, if everything is just right, now this also assumes that you have summer all the time, um, but that's, that's a pretty small amount of land to be growing your food. But if you want to have chickens and pigs and a cow for milk and meat, the area to grow your own food enormously expands. And, and that's not a difficult analogy to think about, is how much of my yard would I devote to growing my food? And it's a pretty small space if you only eat vegetable products. So the expansion of that to the whole planet is it takes more land um, on the planet to feed people when we have animal products. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, so, and, and you're not suggesting that we all become vegan, you're, but you're saying that some, some small changes can have an enormous impact. Like what? Just eating, eating less meat? What, what would you suggest? It, it, yeah, it's less meat, less animal products. Um, it's, I mean, I'm not a certainly not a vegan, and my wife and I are not even vegetarian, but we're certainly conscious of the amount of animal products we eat. Um, So little shifts help take some of the pressure off for uh, land use and and water use. Now, having said that, since my TED Talk, I've gotten a lot of emails from basically beef producers that say, wait a minute, you're maligning our industry. We're not as bad as people think. And here's a key point. Lots of our beef is raised on pastures that would be not be utilized if those animals weren't out there grazing. And, and that really is free meat uh, from those animals. That needs to be factored in. The problem is that's just a tiny fraction of the meat we eat in the United States, is animals from pastures. Hmm. Globally, that's not a small fraction. Imagine small grow, small um, producers in, in Africa, uh, where 
almost all of their animal products come from range-fed animals. So it's, it's a different story worldwide. Animal products can be very efficiently produced when, they're, when they utilize land that can't be used to grow food for people. But, boy, that's not true in the United States. Mm. I mean, most of our animal products are produced in what's called CAFOs, C-A-F-O, Confined Animal Feeding Operation, which most people have seen pictures, lots of chickens, lots of pigs, lots of cattle confined in a small area, and the feed is shipped in. The, the corn that grows all over Iowa and Nebraska and Kansas is 98% of that corn is going to feed animals, in, mostly in these confined operations. And if that's economically efficient, but it's not so environmentally efficient. I want to uh, just um, throw out there a couple of statistics that using your, using your TED Talk, and I, I don't think... Well, at least I wasn't aware of, of, of these particular statistics. Um, 100 gallons of water to grow wheat to make a loaf of bread. You were talking specifically about hydroponic space wheat, but you say the statistics aren't, aren't that much different from the, you know, the wheat that grows in the ground. Couple that with another statistic that you used. If I eat 25% of my diet in animal products, it doubles the amount of land necessary to produce my food. So if you go on the Internet relative to those statistics and put oh, water use in, in beef production, if you type, if anybody types for that search, you will find dozens of claims that are all enormously exaggerated. They're, uh, people working to reduce beef consumption in the diet um, and, and those people claiming, I said, uh, 100 gallons a day to produce our food, that's if it's all vegetarian. But those people claiming thousands of gallons a day if you add animal products. And those claims are very much embellished. Um, it's, and the beef producers are pushing back. We're not that bad. We look at this efficiency, this efficiency. Um, but... 100 gallons a day, and, and I was talking about hydroponic wheat grown carefully in the laboratory. If you do that carefully outside, it's not a lot more than that. That depends on if it's a low humidity climate or a high humidity climate, but it's, it's similar. You irrigate so, you don't, so nothing leaches into the ground, um, and you fertilize properly so, so with every... every unit of water is used perfectly but that's still a lot of water mm. for uh, just for the diet and if, if everything there's no waste if everything's uh, perfect and that sounds like a lot of water for, for a plant but uh, you're saying that's you know that's with efficient that's with very efficient uh, agric uh, agriculture let's uh, turn to uh, Joanna Enterwada again um, you in your TED talk gave three examples of uh, water users irrigators, in essence, uh, Bear River um, area, Bear Lake area, then the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge, where the managers there are using essentially flood irrigation and, and finding very efficient ways, again, prompted by droughts, to, to use water. The least efficient water users, that's us, right? Living in cities, planting our Kentucky bluegrass or whatever, uh, you know, gardening, whatever we do, and just in our, our everyday use of, of water. And that's because, I guess you seem to imply in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the talk that we, again, we don't know where our water comes from. You talk to the man on the street, he doesn't know how much it costs. Um, so one potential solution, um, education, what, what would you suggest? Well, there's wide variability in how much people use to maintain the same landscapes, and that's one of the things that our research has shown, is that um, some people can maintain their lawns much more efficiently than others, and so what makes the difference between them? One of the things that uh, education is important on how much plants actually need and how to water efficiently, but one of the big things is the irrigation technology that people use. Urban irrigators are not trained 
like agricultural irrigators to um, use the irrigation technologies that they have. And so we find that one of the biggest factors predicting overuse of water is the type of irrigation system people have. And automated irrigation systems lend themselves to behavioral patterns that waste water. And it's people's interface with that technology and the time clock and being confounded by it or it being convenient and easy to overwater if you have an automatic irrigation system compared to watering manually. So education, paying attention to the ways that we interface with the landscape through those irrigation technologies and teaching people how to be more efficient is one of the ways we can do that. Would you, I've heard this idea broached. Uh, I, I predict it's not going to go anywhere soon and, until, uh, you know, a majority gets on board. But uh, some people have suggested that uh, the cost of water should reflect the, the you know, the, the real cost of water should be reflected in my water bill as it comes to me every every month. Uh, do you think that would have a an effect? Would you, would you support something like that? It gets people's attention. Mm-hmm. Yep. People would pay attention to the water bill. But um, <clears throat> also understanding the amount that they're using and whether that amount is appropriate for the landscapes that they have is an important thing, too. So I think the economic incentives is one, but there are other incentives that we need to be focusing on, which is the fact that under water law in the West, you're not supposed to waste it. And we have ethical reasons for using it carefully because we all depend on it. It's a public resource. We share it. And so um, we have a number of different ways that I think we need to appeal to people of why it's important to use it carefully. We're talking uh, about water, obviously, on the program today, basing uh, this discussion on three local TED Talks that happened uh, last November. By the way, you can find those. Uh, the, the best way I've found is just to Google that, uh, uh, TEDxUSU. And a bunch of talks there from uh, the past couple of years, uh, some very stimulating uh, conversations there, including our three guests today, Bruce Bugby, Joanna Eterwata, and David Rosenberg. You can join this conversation, hope that you will, with your uh, question or comment at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Tell us what you're doing in your life to uh, conserve water. Perhaps you don't think it's a problem. Uh, what are you doing in your neck of the woods? 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. Let's turn back to uh, David Rosenberg. You give an example, uh, and I wanted an example, of course you provided in your TED Talk, of this idea that we don't need optimal. We look for a solution. In fact, if we insist on optimal, then that's, that's counterproductive. And so you give several examples. You give the skiing example. Um, could you talk to me about some research that you and uh, some colleagues have done about trying to reduce uh, phosphorus, is it, mm-hmm. in the watershed, specifically in northern Utah? You talk about Echo Reservoir. That's a yeah. reservoir I've driven past many times. Um, so a lot of my research involves the mathematical modeling of water systems and trying to simulate how they'll perform under different conditions, which could be like external drivers, such as climate change or water availability or different operations, regimes, different ways of sharing water or, um, or, or, or otherwise working. And the, the thing to keep in mind with models is that they're just a representation of the system, that we're trying to really reduce a complex system, which we may not necessarily know everything about, into something that we can, we can use to inform how to, to manage the system. So um, with Echo Reservoir on the Weber River Basin, um, which is part of the one of several reservoirs that supplies a lot of the Wasatch Front from North Salt Lake City through Ogden with, uh, with water. They're facing a really challenging situation, which is that there's phosphorus running in, off from the land that drains into the watershed that goes into the reservoir. And um, that phosphorus is a contaminant. It, doesn't, it reduces the water quality so that people can't use the water to drink or to, to supply irrigation. It, causes um, algae to grow, which is just a really complicated, difficult, smelly, odor-laden problem that that costs a lot to to remove. So a bunch of the removal strategies or solutions are looking upstream to try and prevent phosphorus from getting into the 
into the rivers and streams to begin with. And so we built a model um, of the system to represent kind of how phosphorus is entering into the um, into the watershed and also when you implement various um, reduction practices like for example fencing streams to keep cattle out of the out of the river to prevent them from um, from defecating in the river or uh, stabilizing stream banks to present prevent the phosphorus that's in the soils from actually eroding into the banks um, we built a model to recommend which of these practices how much of them and um, in what quantities um, you should be implementing to actually reduce or achieve our safe target phosphorus load at the reservoir. And what was surprising is when we ran the model and came up with the optimal solution, which was the solution just, just cost the least, cost the least. It was the least costly solution. The model was only recommending implementing five practices out of 39 that we had available to us. And all of those, or most of those practices were also concentrated in one geographic area, which meant that the people, the farmers and ranchers who were in that area were going to bear most of the cost of solving this community-wide problem if you implemented the optimal solution. And this was a little bit troubling, as it should be, because phosphorus is a problem that we all share, right? And so by looking at near-optimal solutions, which we were defining specifically as solutions that had a cost within 5% or 10% of the optimal cost, so they were a little bit more expensive, but not much, you suddenly opened up a whole broader mix of actions. And in fact, you could implement any solution, phosphorus removal strategy, in any of the geographic locations um, and still keep costs within 10% of the optimal cost. And this just opens up a whole different way of looking at this problem. And there's a lot of promising solutions that can address issues of equity, of fairness, of um, potentially one of the management practices may not work out, may just may not have the effectiveness that we, we had modeled. So near optimal really offers just a much richer mix of ways to solve challenging complex problems, which are inherent in how we manage water um, and how water is managed here in, in Utah in particular. Joanne Enter Water, I imagine this resonates with you on a, on a broader scale. If you, if you look at the examples you've cited, um, you, you know, optimal solution may not fly because this has to be adopted by a critical mass of the stakeholders, doesn't it? It's, uh, That's true. It's governance issues that we're really talking about with water. We have to make community societal decisions about what the most important uses are, what the trade-offs, what the consequences of our choices are. And um, that's a discussion we're having right now in the state as the governor's initiated activities to look at a long-term 50-year strategy for how we're going to face the future and how we are going to continue to thrive and grow as a state, but with a limited resource. It's limited throughout the Colorado River Basin that we're part of and throughout the West as a whole. This year's predictions of drought make that ever more clear that we have to be very careful about how we manage water, but more than anything, we have to figure out how we can make these decisions as a society because it is our resource that we own together. Let's, uh, we, we have about uh, four and a half minutes left. I just uh, maybe have each of you uh, quickly talk about solutions. We've outlined, of course, uh, problems, interconnectedness of, uh, we all share this problem. Uh, Bruce Bugby, what, as you look at this, what, what are some solutions that uh, you can see? I, I want two things. The, the one we've been talking about is consider eating less meat. But even an easier one is don't waste food. It, it drives me nuts when something gets moldy in the back of the refrigerator or you buy food that spoils, you can't eat it. All of us have buy more food than we can use. So trying to minimize food waste is, uh, is e thinking carefully about what we eat. And those are pretty easy things for people to do once they really get conscious of it. And if nothing else, they can feel virtuous for uh, helping save the planet by yeah. changing their diet. Yeah, I, I definitely, knowing that stat, you know, 100 gallons of water for a, for a loaf of bread, I, I definitely, I think, will be a little more careful. Uh, we do have this email that came in. 
um, I'll have our guests respond to this. Uh, this is from Daniel. He says, how much does it really matter for me to conserve water? I live on a personal well, and I have a septic tank, so everything I use goes right back where it came from. Uh, who, who wants to tackle this one? Um, sure, I'd happy to jump in. Uh, ahead, I mean, it, it matters because that the groundwater that you're drawing is connected to a larger system, which is a groundwater aquifer that other people have wells that go into. Um, that septic system discharges back to the groundwater, which feeds surface water, wetlands, environmental systems. Um, water, there's a water cycle, and um, things are things are connected. Um, the other thing is that it's not just water. There's energy that goes into pumping that water out of the groundwater that you're that you're paying for um, to lift the water up to to be able to use it. So. Um, there's potentially that resource to consider. Um, the more water you put through the septic system, the faster it clogs up, which means you have to clean it out um, quicker. And cleaning out septic systems is, is not an inexpensive proposition. Yeah. It's all an illustration. It's, it's all interconnected, isn't it? Uh, we'll give Joanna Underwater the last word. You just have about a minute left. You wanted to know solutions, yes. and I agree with what David said. It's all connected, and that we have to connect water to other issues, such as energy, air quality, you know. So it's one resource of many. But I would say, even though we don't pay a lot for water right now, we have to recognize it's valuable, precious, and limited. And we have to use it carefully, and we have to find out how to cooperate better in making the decisions as a society about how to use it. And we've just scratched the surface here, or put a ripple in the in the pond, as it were, to, to use a, a more appropriate uh, metaphor. Uh, we'll, I'm sure, treat uh, these and related issues um, on future programs. Uh, we thank very much uh, Bruce Bugby, USU uh, professor. Thanks so much. Thanks, and I want to thank uh, Bennett Purser for uh, producing this, getting us all together. Yes. Tom, you did a great job listening carefully to all of our talks and asking insightful questions. Well, Thanks. I appreciate that. And, and by the way, that's a good reminder. You can go and view these talks, uh, and I hope that you will. Very interesting. Many other uh, talks as well. Uh, just Google uh, TEDxUSU. Joanna Terwada, who is a USU Associate Professor of Natural Resource and Environmental Policy. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. And David Rosenberg, USU Assistant Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering. Thanks. You're welcome. And for uh, producers uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, offering breakfast Monday through Saturday, beginning at 7 a.m., featuring quiche, granola with layers of yogurt and fruit, or a ciabatta fried egg bun with bacon, avocado, and provolone. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. 60-year-old Royden Card, artist and poet, explores with his wife Sandy whether he chose art or art chose him. Uh, my father had been a sometimes, uh, you know, Sunday painter. He only got to go to one semester of uh, university, and one of the classes he took was a, a painting class, and he had painted as a teenager also. And he would sometimes paint, and in our house there were paintings uh, by my father, yeah, which were really quite good, you know, of uh, landscapes and snow scenes. And, and But I didn't see him paint. I knew he had a paint box and uh, some, you know, brushes and paints and, and some canvases and some of the things that he painted on. Uh, and because our family was poor, he sometimes painted on old window blinds, <laughs> the fabric uh, that he would, you know, then, you know, glue down to a board. But I recognized that there were these things of beauty. But I drew. I drew as a kid. It's one thing my parents let me do while we had to watch uh, the LDS General Conference <laughs> when we had a TV and were able to do that. You know, they would let me draw in church uh, to help keep me, uh, you know, occupied and, and not squirmy. And about the time I turned 10, I had this odd idea in my head that I was going to be an artist and was drawing all the time. And on our trips to uh, southern Utah, you know, would draw the arches and... and 
in junior high, I would draw, you know, from magazines and draw other people in, in my classes. You know, when I turned 14, my father turned over his paint box to me and taught me some very basic things about uh, the craft and a little bit of painting theory. A specific memory, I remember he took uh, an afternoon with me. Basically, you know, sat me down and says it's important that you get, you know, a decent surface to paint on and you need to seal your masonite boards with gesso. And he showed me how to do that and showed me how to handle a brush. And then he also showed me some, you know, very basic things. He says you always need to remember, you know, to go from lean to, uh, you know, to fat in, in your paints. And, and talk to me about, you know, cutting the initial you know, drawing that I was going to do on, on the board with um, a brush. It was just a nice time. It was, you know, not more than a, a couple of hours that he spent with me. You know, I, I, I appreciated that. That's kind of how it started. Took all of the art classes in high school, and I was just determined to do it. I don't know why. I got both my, my Bachelor of Fine Arts and uh, Master of Fine Arts at, at Brigham Young University. I was always drawn to uh, the... Uh, German Expressionists and the Fauves, who were, you know, very bright and colorful, you know, painters. And uh, I loved, you know, Van Gogh and how he, you know, kind of, you know, jacked the color up a little bit and Gauguin and, and yet had a great appreciation for those other things. And I, when I would paint desert landscape, I always tended to do somewhat more designy type things with it. And getting more color was just wonderful to me. And, and actually, after I met you and married you, people claimed that my paintings got a lot brighter <laughs> <laughs> and, and more colorful. <laughs> so, and, and it's true. I look back and some of my other paintings, even though I thought they were colorful at that time, were a, a little bit somber and much more colorful since I met you. <laughs> I don't know how I got into poetry, but uh, it's, a, it's kind of like I fiddled with it a little bit in high school. <laughs> I brought a favorite of one that you sent me. Oh, okay. I love if you would share that one. Um, doesn't have a title. This angle of sun, that slope of that hill, summer spent grass gone some golden faded yellow, it troubles me, intrigues, catches my gaze as I pass, as I gaze out the window. I wonder why I keep on trying, brush in hand, the color on the canvas insignificant, next to this view, that light. One touch of nature makes all man kin, Shakespeare wrote. One look at nature makes painting sin. I cannot touch that glory. The life would go out of me if I did not try. God, you have made the world too beautiful. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, it's a party with Latin sounds like salsa, the mambo, boogaloo, and cumbia. Esta mañana empecé como un loco hablando solo, sacando cuenta de todo lo que fui loco. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us on the dance floor for a Latin party on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Tune in tomorrow night at 10 o'clock every Friday night on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.